Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Women of Rock Oral History Project Podcast. I had a really great night last night because I talked to Melanie Safka, better known as by just her first name, Melanie, for about three hours. I was totally terrified because uh, to me, you know, she's the 60s Woodstock playing legend um, and she couldn't have been nicer and more down to earth. And uh, we just had a really nice conversation. So I think you'll find this interview interesting um, because we talked about a lot of things that she hasn't really talked about before. Um, you probably know Melanie best from her hit song, Brand New Key. Um, her other uh, most well-known hit, Look What They've Done to My Song Ma. And then she talked about, I'm glad, my personal favorite, Candle in the Wind, uh, Lay Me Down, is the other name of that song. Um, And she performed that with the Edwin Hawkins Band in 1970. And uh, it's an amazing song and definitely my absolute favorite. Because we talked for so long, which is great, this is going to be another two-part episode. Um, So this is part one. And then um, I will probably just immediately upload episode two because I'm impatient and I'm excited to listen to it myself because I have trouble actually like living in and enjoying the moment because I'm usually so nervous and uh, trying to keep my shit together. So here we go. Melanie for the Women of Rock Oral History Project podcast. Hi, I see you. You don't see me, I hope. Oh, yeah, that's okay. (laughs) You wouldn't want to see me right now. You really, really wouldn't want to see me. Look at, I'm all dressed up in my sweatshirt. (laughs) Look at that. I think at least you have a bra on. (laughs) Oh, I do. I had to check. I I don't. I had to teach a class this morning, so I put a bra on for that. (laughs) Um, What kind of a class? Yeah, I don't want to subject the kids to (laughs) what happens when I take it off. (laughs) No, I figure um, we'll see each other someday. What kind of a class is it? Um, Well, I teach. I'm in a a PhD program uh, because I'm insane. Uh, So I I teach uh, history at UMass Amherst. Wow. Yep. So just whatever history classes they assign to me. And sometimes they let me make up my own, like the history of rock music, which I just follow oh, with cool. women. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> women had a very special place yeah. or non-place <laughs> in music yeah. then. Yeah. Um okay. Well, I have a, a set of headphones, but I don't need them. Do you? No, I don't have. Do you, them. Would it make it? Okay, okay. Yeah, and you you sound good. And I'm recording each of our our uh, tracks separately. Okay, super, super. Up, but, um, yeah, I, d- I had an international Zoom call that was like a bit of a fiasco, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm God. still just not used to this at all. Like I'm, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I hate virtual worlds. Yeah. I'm much more of a hands-on person. Yeah, me too. This is like very depressing to me, but I would rather talk to you than not talk to you. Not. I don't know when this is going to end, so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just 
treat this like as if we were sitting in person. So these are um, kind of okay. long form um, biographical interviews. Um, so we'll start like when you were a kid and move our way up. Um, but it's basically, I kind of let you lead where it goes. So whatever you think is the most important, because you have lived a very long and full life, 48 albums worth of. <laughs> it's not that long. You know, yeah. you would think that it sounds long. Yeah. And I understand the concept, but when you're actually experience it, it it's life isn't that long. It doesn't feel that <laughs> it doesn't feel long to you. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm this old woman and I've lived. It's actually kind of, it's, it's startling. Yeah. I mean, just like the, the magnitude. And it actually hasn't, the what? I mean, just Wait your, like, looking oh. at it, looking at the, your physical releases, you know, it, it's a very, very long list. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, and. People can do amazing things, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed. I don't think I could do Woodstock now. No. Oh, it will. We're gonna talk. About I mean, you know, just the whole idea of getting up in front and the importance of it. But, but of course, then there was it didn't didn't feel that important. I mean, I knew it was big. Yeah. I knew there were a lot of people out there, but it it didn't it didn't register. The, oh, this is going to be history. Yeah. They're going to be talking about this in 50 years. You know, the, the concept of time was so different. You know, mm -hmm. when when you're younger, the concept of time is different. Again, life doesn't take that long. Yeah. Really and truly. I mean, it's um, it, it, you get very hung up at a certain point with sex. <laughs> I mean, that the hormones kick in and everything you do is about everything to do with who you're with and who you're not with and who loves you and who doesn't love you. And, um, and, and are you pretty? And uh, what should I do? And, um, uh, there's so many things that you're obsessed with, with, um, you know, being in a good position to survive, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, then perspective changes and, you think, wow, what was that about? <laughs> it took an awful lot of energy to get involved in that shit. Yeah. You know, I really don't even believe that it, you know, I paid that much attention to it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's an orgasm. It's, yeah. You know, yeah. What else? You know, it's a big, you know, yeah. And then, you know, the French call it little death, but, you know, you get, obsessed with all of that and at a certain point and then you really don't think there is life that has anything to do with much else mm -hmm. you know so it's very um i yeah i, I now that i'm looking back at and you can see that um that the whole the whole propaganda that has been our life we have been so pushed to to think a certain way that um it's a relief when you can have a perspective of distance to it and you can see well, aha uh -huh, now i see what they did to me yeah. <laughs> look what they did to my life 
Ma. Yeah, really. <laughs> Actually, it's funny you say that, um, Jerry. Um, what is it, Jerry? Yeah, it's just two big songwriters. They wrote for the New Jersey Boys. Um, Frankie Valley. There were a lot of uh, oh, Jerry. You know. Yeah, Jerry. no, I know who you're talking about. Not the the Brill Building guys. Yeah, Brill Building, okay. Jerry. Um, I know I can't. Oh my God, is it is it that Luigi? <laughs> Luigi? Oh, Hugo and Luigi. Oh, that's that's oh, they were published. Oh, Jerry and so this is Carol. Um, Jerry. There were two writing team. It was a writing team, and they opened a publishing company called April Blackwood. Um, anyway, he said, he said, Melanie, I have a great idea. Why don't you make a song called "Look What They've Done to the World"? Ma? I mean, yeah, I mean, you could. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> Still relevant. Um, yeah. Well, you just said a lot of stuff that is definitely pertinent to my life. I'm very quickly rounding the corner to 40. And uh, I just feel like I've, I'm a aging lesbian spinster. My <laughs> vagina's closed up. Like, I just don't even care. I still have friends who care about all that stuff. But not me. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> my... My that's my daughter's age. Yeah, you were my daughter's age. Yeah, I just I and, and that and your generation was meddled with big time, to, right? Right from don't eat eggs, <laughs> and um and eat margarine, and now of course we know we have to eat the whole egg because that is what emulsifies the 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 good stuff. You know, you need the whole egg. You can't separating an egg is a really bad idea. Yeah. Melanie, I don't eat eggs at all because I went the vegan way. <laughs> so oh, you're totally vegan. Of <laughs> yeah. course. No. Well, there you don't have to worry yeah. about it. But, um, <laughs> my daughter won't, won't touch an egg. Yeah. You know, it's, she's cholesterol minded. <laughs> and that whole thing is such a, yeah. a, a ruse. The food. Um, they find out, oh, we, we need cholesterol. And, the whole pharmaceutical industry made a billion dollars more on the whole myth of cholesterol, high cholesterol. Yeah. And now they find out that it has very little to do with what really happens. Mm -hmm. It's all the genetically modified processed gunk exactly. that they're putting in our food. And poor Americans, are like, <laughs> I feel so bad for us. Yeah. <laughs> Really, we are so meddled with, but we were the last holdout, you know, yeah. really, I, I used to think Europe, Europe is free, Europe is, but it's not, it's worse. Actually, they're more tame over there than we ever were here. Oh. Well behaved. I mean, look at Germans in Nazi Germany. They just went along with this being well behaved is dangerous. All right. Um, before we get too far in, we're going to get back to all of that stuff, but um, I'll try to uh, make this sort of cohesive. <laughs> so. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> not, not too cohesive. I want to totally jump all over the place. Well, well, we probably still will, but I don't want to no, skip no, Little okay. Melanie. No, don't skip Little okay. Melanie. Yeah. That was very, very important part of my life. Yes. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Astoria, Queens, and yes, Queens, 
and there's this very special Queens vibe thing. But um, uh, that's where I grew up, very isolated. I had a a big uh, family. We lived together in a very, I guess now it would be considered very spacious apartment. It had um, three big bedrooms and it had a giant living room, dining room. And then the kitchen was off of that, a long hallway. And it was eight stories up and you walked up. Oh, wow. And uh, I just think of my grandmother walking up all those stairs every night after she she would work at the uh, one of those sewing sweat factory places. And she became very involved in the Ladies Garment Workers Union. She was a, a big fighter for the women's rights. And um, my uncle George lived there. And I guess her involvement with unions and the rights of the workers was a big influence on him. And he was uh, sang songs of labor and he played the guitar. And um, he also played the baritone ukulele. Everybody in my family played a baritone ukulele that's um, a little bigger than a tiny Tim type of ukulele. That is, um, it's a little more legitimate looking. It has, the one we had was made of wood and um, it was uh, the instrument that I learned how to play early music on was a baritone ukulele. And my mom sang, my mom was, more jazz, blues. Uh, I was, uh, her records would include Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. And and then she liked some of the big band singers, Peggy Lee. And, uh, but mostly, mostly uh, more soulful uh, music and a lot of jazz influence, Ella Fitzgerald and, those people. And um, so I grew up with that and songs was the capitalist and Sundays were the big day. Everybody in the family would come over. My grandmother would make homemade pasta because she's from Italy and she would, um, you know, make the ravioli on the big long a dining room table she would line it with a, a white sheet and roll out the pasta and my job would be to press uh, a glass down and make the round ravioli and you know then we'd stuff it with whatever and um, then you know that was Sundays we'd eat and eat and eat and um, it was unbelievable the, the, the food and the brioski <laughs> brioski would follow um and uh, and then bowls of fruit and cookies and whatever my grandmother made or picked up at the steinway bake shop you know for a sunday and it was that was the way it was and then afterward all, all the women would go into the kitchen and laugh and talk and the men would debate <laughs> the men would all debate the, the state of the world and my I, my father was the lone capitalist they the rest of them were all italian 
left wing, very uh, union, you know, for the, of the, by the people. And my dad was, you know, everybody can make it in America. You know, <laughs> he was Mike Lindell. <laughs> my dad, it, my dad what did your was, dad do for work that he was? He was a uh, retail. Um, he started the first discount stores in America. It was um, called Two Guys from Harrison. He wasn't one of the guys. He was the idea man behind it. And he he kind of got screwed by the two guys. But um, he, you know, you know invented, he was an inventor. I mean, my dad was, like, pretty incredible with ideas. And um, he, he was very funny, too. And so I tended to end up siding with him because... He would make jokes about these very serious things, and I just thought that was great. You know, that's it's it was it's kind of been my way of getting around any kind of misery, which is it's a philosophical approach. You know, if you if you can make it funny, you know, when it really isn't, but but it you know it it, it is really when you really look back and especially when you get older and you look back you say wow what was that you know some of the crazy arguments and differences and uh of life you know that become so important but they really aren't yeah that's kind of my philosophy too is just everything is absurd <laughs> absurd i have a poem about love for the absurd mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's a good survival um, mechanism too. Yeah, and that's the name of the game. You know, we have to we have to get on with it and survive. And I always think of it as some some kind of a deal that we made early on, maybe even before we were existing. That you have to do it. You have to go through the whole thing. You can't kill yourself. You have to have to do the whole thing. And so um, that is kind of kept me going because yeah. certainly some of the trials and tribulations that I have encountered have made me th think of why mm -hmm. why should I endure any more of this you know but um there's a deal I made a deal I don't know when exactly I wish I had a better negotiator when this deal was made but Somehow I made a deal and I'm keeping to it. Um, so I think it's safe to say that creativity was something that was encouraged in your household. Uh, no, not really. I mean, um, it was kind of a nuisance. Um, everybody, you know, was thinking, um, um, certainly nobody thought that that was a good idea, you know, to try to pursue that as a career. I think um, the children of the, the people who played at Woodstock are the first people who um, ever encouraged their kids to be rock stars. Okay. Um, what? Because um, it was it was you know it was impossible. Yeah. Who knows? Who knew how? people became singers, you know, and how people became actors or any of that. It was, it was like this crazy idea, you know, and in my leftist side of the family, it was kind of frowned upon to be a celebrity, 
celebrities were highly questioned. You know, the the wheat that grows highest is always cut down is the kind of philosophy that went through that side of my family. And so um, becoming something was almost um, just not very valuable in the realm of things. So um, I always, I I never wanted to be famous. What was that? Was education important to to your family that you pursued? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very. I was a good uh, student. I, I was always, you know, got good grades. But um, so I, that was just a given. I would never think of coming home with anything less than a, a B. And um, well, I have two kind of musical questions. So the first one is, what is your first musical memory when you thought, oh, this is something that I want to do with my life? <laughs> Yeah, no, I never really had one of those thoughts. Oh. <laughs> um, that that happened way later. Um, well, when did you first start? Um, I think singing and playing, and uh, in front of singing and playing, it was just part of what people did. And my whole house sang and played something. My my dad even played the saxophone, and my my mother she you know, would play the ukulele and my uncle played the ukulele. My grandmother played the ukulele. She would just burst out into song all the time. Lots of Italian songs. And my mother, again, jazz, blues, my uncle, labor songs, Woody Guthrie, one meatball (laughs) songs of the depression. Um, And, uh, but musically, I was just, um, I think they, my mom thought I might be the next Shirley Temple. What? So she um, had me take tap dancing lessons. I think fantasizing that I was, you know, the next tap dancing kid. Wait, why, <laughs> why was that acceptable, but not music? <laughs> tap dancing. No, music was acceptable. I didn't say it wasn't acceptable. I as a career. Okay. You know, okay. it's a B to try to strive to be a famous person wouldn't it's not it was not. But oh no, music was part of life. That was yeah. you know what people did. I was actually kind of surprised when other friends of mine didn't have music all over the place, you know. Um, and the whole idea of singing out in the street. I mean, my grandmother would walk along and all of a sudden she'd be, la, la, re, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I wasn't embarrassed, you know, until later. <laughs> then, yeah. I, then I said, oh, God. <laughs> the teen years. Yeah, yeah. But um, early, no, music was was not at all frowned upon. No, but um, even the thought about doing it as a profession wasn't anything that was worthy. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you start performing music live? Um, Well, that that was early on as well. Um, 
my mom, uh, again, she taught me songs and I was, I must have had a really uncanny knack of remembering lyrics and being in key and having good rhythm. So um, she, she brought me to um, th this little place. <laughs> the guy was called Jimmy the Greek. And Jimmy the Greek had a tape recorder, a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And the only other tape recorder I had ever seen was um, Don Fenudo, the archaeologist who recorded notes on his expeditions and adventures in archaeology. That was one of the first things I wanted to be, was an archaeologist. And where my life intertwined with tape, I was successful, but I didn't become an archaeologist. Um, he, anyway, my so I went to Jimmy the Greek, and my mom would record songs that she taught me with hand motions. And uh, we went on a, uh, a a radio show that was called uh, I don't know I don't I don't remember the name, but if we were a mom and it was like you had to be related to the person and you and your brother or you and your mother or your father or your sister sang or did something together and you would either win or lose and my mom decided this was a good idea so she um I guess you know this is contradicting what I said as far as celebrity I think my mom might have been not quite in agreement with that. I think she really wanted me to be a little star. So, uh, so I um, went on this show and we won a second runner up <laughs> to um, me and my mom. She sang exactly like you, which is a, like a standard uh, song. I sang a song called Give Me a Little Kiss. And I, I think it was four. Oh my God. And we had a recording of it. And the, the, the MC was so patronizing. And even at four years old, there was something I didn't like about that. You know, I could feel being talked down to and, and having things said that I didn't understand deliberately so that the audience would think it was funny. You know, because I would go, what? <laughs> and and yeah, I hated that. So, but anyway, I we won second runner up, and my prize was a tiny tears doll that you put the water in a bottle and you squeeze the bottle into the baby and it pees and it cries, which like was phenomenal. This was like amazing that you could have a baby doll that did this and that I won this doll was incredible. Um, and I waited weeks and weeks and finally it came and, and it was this, this amazing, uh, maybe that was my early incentive, you know, <laughs> Hey, look what I got. <laughs> maybe I could, uh, you know, do this, but uh, anyway, we won. And I mean, it wasn't like my mom was, a stage mom, you know, we, we did that. And that was that. And I mean, we, I, she was a, a homemaker. That's what they called people then homemaker. And 
uh, once you're a homemaker, you don't, um, you know, that's pretty much it. You're not going to. But, but my mom really did love to sing. She loved to sing out. But she was she had a shyness about her and a very not performer-like, you know, like she sang her songs, she put her heart into it, and then, you know, left. <laughs> and she didn't do the big hangout, you know, with the musicians and stuff. So was she um, proud of you when you started performing and becoming successful? Um, no. Oh, she wasn't. <laughs> no. No, I, I actually, I ended up living her dream life. And there was this resentment that was, you know, but when I was, you know, si singing and I guess developing a style, whatever that is, you know, um, I would listen to records and I would sing the songs and they didn't sound like the person who sang them. Whereas her, her thought, her philosophy about singing was there was a way to do it that you're supposed to sound. And that was her way of doing it. And, you know, smooth and finished notes and, you know, refined uh, sound to it. And uh, I was born with a little scratchy voice. I don't know what that was, but I always had a little bit of um, a little too much vibrato. Uh, and she would try to get that out of me, <laughs> um, you know, and tell me, you know, how to not do that. And um, But every time I'd go to sing, um, I had to do it the way I did it. You know, and so she was not, she wasn't, I don't think she thought I was very good, I, especially growing up. Um, but uh, my dad, however, was exceedingly proud of me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, he, he didn't encourage it as a profession. He thought that would be horrible, but you know, he wanted me to, he wanted me to be a debutante. You know? <laughs> I know. I mean, he wanted me to have a coming out party when oh. I was in high school. I mean, it was um, totally not, I should not, you know, even think about that, but um, you know, it was the typical you marry well and um, you know, have successful family life and that, whatever. Anyway, um, I, I didn't like either side's idea of what I should do. I mean, really, I, I left home very young. I mean, for, I mean, it wasn't very young. It was, I was like 18. So did you finish um, high school and then just left? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, well, no, I, I actually had a little episode. My dad wanted me to go to college. And we went the route of filling out applications and <clears throat> uh, college prep places and all this stuff. And um, I really had no intention of going to college. I had not no, I had had it with um, just the life I was living in in high school was was pretty sad. You know, I didn't have friends. Um, I was very much uh, an oddball 
they would have called me or a beatnik maybe uh, and I was always having trouble in school and it wasn't because of my school grades it was because my uh, I, I thought a lot out loud okay. I was quiet but they they knew <laughs> I didn't quite agree with a lot of things and I had a horrible time in literature, which was one of my favorite subjects. But I had a teacher who, you know, told us what the writer was saying, right? told us what it meant. And I constantly disagreed. <laughs> and um, that got me into all kinds of trouble. And um, even in music, I had a music um, class and I, I disagreed. I don't know. Maybe I was just being obstinate or something, but I, there was something about the way it was being taught that I disagreed with. And um, this uh, one music choral director, I'll never forget this because it really had a big impact on me. He um, was teaching us this song that I thought was so stupid. I don't know. I don't know. It was this little silver ring that once thou gavest me. And I, I hate this song. <laughs> and we had to go over it and over it. And he, I had this one part, and and it just, it, you know, it didn't thrill me at all. And once out loud, I said something about, why can't we do something that's on the radio? <laughs> so I don't know, something like that, you know, and, and he, he looked at me, he actually had tears in his eyes. Oh, you know, he was so, he was so moved by what he was doing. And right after, you know, you know, rehearsal, and I blurted that out, you know, and and he walked over to me, looked at my eyes, and I instantly regretted doing that because he had so much truth and honesty and feeling in what he was doing. And what was I doing questioning that? You know, I and and I became his favorite student after that <laughs> because I, I totally turned around that minute and so got into what he was doing and um it, it left a very strong impression that someone who is really communicating whatever it is whether it's completely opposite of anything you like if it's true and real to me that's that's like it that's it's authentic it's real and that's what counts i agree um but you, you, and his out. name was Dr. Dilsner. Oh, good. I'm glad he gets a shout out. Dr. Dilsner. <laughs> I don't think he's, he's here anymore. Okay. I would just imagine because he was older. His memory, his memory of Dr. Dilsner. <laughs> um, and it was Dr. Dilsner. It wasn't Mr. Dilsner. Of course. Um, but you were saying that your, your dad was not happy because he wanted you to go to college. He wanted me to go to college. And um, my solution to that was to run away from home. And um, I didn't just run away. I went to California from New Jersey. Oh. So I was in New Jersey and somehow 
I, you know, saved up and sold things and um, made enough money to buy a plane ticket <laughs> to California. And at that point, you could um, use an alias. You didn't have to have ID. Okay. And I just bought a ticket. And my name was Eve Dane. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know where I got it. You know, it's, it's so hokey. I can't even believe I was Eve Dane. And I got on the plane. I I went out, you know, like I'm going to school. And um, I didn't take my guitar. First of all, I thought by that time I played a guitar. I didn't play ukulele anymore. And I thought, they'll, you know, if they're looking for someone, they'll definitely spot a girl with a guitar. Then... There were no girls with guitars. I just want to tell you this. Um, only guys played guitars. Guitars were a guy thing. Joan Baez was one of the first women ever that I ever saw holding a guitar. And then I then I noticed there was Jean Ritchie, um, uh, who is a folk, you know, serious folk person, like the Library of Congress type folk person, and. Um, but mostly it was uh, a guy instrument, you know. Yeah. Women played piano <laughs> and cello and, and um, violin and maybe flute. But the, uh, and it was, I don't know why it was considered not a woman's instrument. But um, anyway, so I left my guitar home. I went to California and as luck would have it, I sat next to a, an actor. I didn't know who he was. Um, his name was Robert Ridgely. And he was a, a big star at the time in television. He had a, a show called The Gallant Men. Wow. And, wow. and his name was Robert Ridgely. And I sat next to him and we talked and we talked and and I was saying, yeah, I like to sing. And, you know, he's, why are you going to California? I'm going to be an actress. I had already graduated from acting school. That was my path of least resistance for my father. He wouldn't let me not go to school. <laughs> I, had to, I had to go to some kind of upper education and the American Academy of Dramatic Arts was it. But um, I was going to to be an actress and I told him he said what's your name and I, Eve Dane and you know now that I look back I see he didn't believe me for a second you know and he asked me how old I was and I told him 18 or something 20 maybe and he didn't believe that either so <laughs> anyway we talked and we talked and he said uh, you know where you're going and everything like right when you get out of here you have a place to stay and I said, oh, yes, yes. Um, I had a phone number of somebody. That's what I had. <laughs> a phone number of someone. I had no idea who it was. But um, somebody had given me a phone number of someone. Anyway, I I got off the plane and I realized I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I don't know where I'm going and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and there's Robert Ridgely. And he's walking idea he was a big star at that point and he had a chauffeur who was carrying his luggage a chauffeur with a uniform and there he's walking by and he sees me he says you all right 
I said, oh, well, I can't actually get through to this person that I was supposed to get through to. And he said, you don't really have a place to stay tonight, do you? And I said, no. And he said, I know the woman who runs the Hollywood Studio Club for Girls. And uh, with an actor's recommendation, I can get you a room there. And I went, great. <laughs> so I went along with him and I get into the back of a limo. <laughs> I mean, uh, right? I, um, I get in the back. I've never been in a limo in my life. You know, I just, um, maybe for a wedding or something. But um, so here I am. And he drop, takes me in and he introduces me to the headmistress of the Hollywood Studio Club for Girls. It was a, a nice house in Hollywood somewhere. I don't even know where it was. Um, and he said, this is Eve Dane and she's an aspiring actress. And um, do you have a room? And she said, yes. And so I was taken to a little room. Uh, you know, it was a shared bathroom, but you had your own room with a, like a telephone intercom on your wall. So there was a way to talk if you needed to communicate with someone downstairs and I was I was there for a few days and by day I would just walk around and I, I thought about getting a job you know <laughs> where I better get you know some work or something I didn't even have a social security number it's funny because you didn't have to have one then yeah so I I didn't have that and you had to have that you had I remember every social security number and um they wanted all kinds of other things that i didn't have and i realized i'm gonna, I'm gonna have a little trouble here <laughs> um so i was walking down the street and there was this guy and you know just started talking to him and uh he we got onto the subject of music and i said yeah i play guitar but i don't have it here he said well i have a guitar i have a guitar in my we're going to have a get together tonight. And I, he said, you want to come by? And so I went with him like, yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. And so anyway, I, I get there and he, uh, there's this other guy and they're sitting there. No, I think I got there by myself. I don't think I went with him. I, I just went, you know, I just went, he told me where it was. And I, I guess I took a taxi and, I was there and I got this weird vibe. Like they were kind of looking at each other, these two guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, he showed me his guitar and, and he's talking some more and they're like looking back and forth at each other. And I just felt like I was in danger. Yeah. You know, you just, there's something that tells you, you know, with that voice that tells you. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, I'm going to the, the bathroom where's your bathroom and I walked the bathroom <laughs> I opened the front door and I ran yeah. I ran out of that door and I just kept running and all of a sudden I'm on a freeway running on a freeway um you know and a little bit of tiny bit of side that was on the freeway and I was running and running and running and I knew I had escaped something bad mm -hmm. And uh, sure, it was like it was like maybe after night or something. And um, 
police came by and stopped and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just uh, going back to where I live. <laughs> he said, you're not allowed to be on the freeway walking and running. You know, you're not allowed to do that. It's not allowed. I said, oh, oh okay. Um, he said, we'll take you um, to a place where you're allowed to be. So he said, where are you staying? I said, the Hollywood Studio Club for Girls. And I thought he was taking me there, but basically he left me off on a street corner. And there was like a little uh, deli or know, cafe or something. And I went in and um, I was getting the the number of the place where I lived so I could get back there. And I mean, this whole process was taking a very long time. I It was probably, you know, almost dawn when I um, found out where I had to go. So I found out where I had to go and I was having to get a taxi to do that. I got back to the Hollywood Studio Club for Girls in the wee hours of the morning and um, I had to, you know, get somebody to open the door. It, you weren't really supposed to be out after, I don't know, 10 or something. Mm -hmm. And they let me in. I went up to my room and I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> that was just like hysterical and like crying and wondering what the hell I'm going to do. <laughs> and uh, I get a little ring on my little phone that's on the wall and I picked up and the lady said, she doesn't only, how did she get my name? She said, there are two people down here to see you. And I went, I thought it was my mother and father, or at least my father, you know, I just thought they had come for me. I don't know how I thought that, but I thought that. And I went down to the the lobby and there were two police officers and they took me to a girl's detention home because they had a, a, a notice that they were looking for a girl who fit my description and that, uh, you know, this is something I didn't think my parents would worry. <laughs> you know? It's because you're stupid, you know, well, I was stupid and young and I didn't know and I just didn't occur to me that they would possibly be beside themselves frantically worried. Mm. And um, I, you know, they took me to the girls detention home to wait um, to see what was going to happen with me. And I, uh, a, a hardened girl there, I will say hardened because she was really tough. And I, she knew everything. She kind of took me under her wing and said, you're going to have to wait for your pre-Ds. And I didn't know what the pre-D was, you know, and, and I'm, I was horrified. I mean, this, this was a scary place to be. <laughs> I was in jail. I was in a girl's detention home. And I, I, you know, every time I talked to somebody, I'd say, you know, did my mother, did my father, does he know where I am? You know, and, well, we're going to get to that and, and we'll let you know. And um, and what were you doing out in the thing? And, and because I guess the police who picked me up must have reported something. Um, and anyway, here I am in a jail. <laughs> a girl's detention. And they, they, she got me 
so I had my own little cell because before that I was with a lot of girls um, and they were terrifying <laughs> and I none of them spoke English and I would know they were talking about me you know just and she, I'll get you out of there and so they, she got me a, a private cell <laughs> which was very nice and um, not wasn't not nice it was horrible it was a toilet where they could look at you <laughs> while you're peeing you know I thought I, and the food was like something I had never experienced this kind of food it was it was very, um, I would say now Mexican, but it was like slop. <laughs> it was, you know, I don't know, corn stuff. And I, I wasn't at all familiar. You know, we didn't go out to Mexican. I never, Mexican wasn't like as common as it is now. Mm -hmm. Food, but you know, it, um, if we went out, it was usually for Chinese. So, and deli, deli food, but I, I never heard of Mexican. So this food was like totally abhorrent. Yeah. You know, these flavors were not familiar with, I was not familiar with this food, but I, you know, I was sick. I was mostly sick. I felt, um, you know, I was abandoned, you know, and, and nobody knew where I was and, uh, some some pretty terrible things happened there um but i i was okay you know i i was okay and i had doctors exams and the woman wouldn't believe i didn't have makeup on she made me scrub my face and my eyes were red and my skin was peeling off from this harsh harsh soap that i had to scrub my face so she wouldn't believe i didn't have makeup on and um it's amazing. I, I, it's incredible what people have to endure in a situation where they lose their rights, you know. But um, I was, uh, I got a call. There was, my father was there. And I thought, oh, my God. And I saw my dad. I just turned into a sobbing you know, thank God he found me and we flew home. And that's, that's when he, that is when he decided I could go to acting school. That's right. I had proven my point very definitely. And he, he said, so where are we, you know, where are you going to go to school? You can't just not go to school. And I, I he said, how about music school? And he said, okay. And, and all the requirements for, you know, traditional music schools where you, you auditioned, but you had to read and write music. It wasn't like you could, you, you, you know, get, it was way before anybody considered the music business as being a topic of uh, education. <laughs> there was no class in the music business or how to get along in songwriting or there was nothing like this. I was, I was a person who wrote songs, but, uh, you know, I never would have called myself a songwriter. Um, anyway, I, I I didn't qualify for Berkeley or Juilliard or any of the traditional music schools. And uh, the because I had an interest in acting, uh, I auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and I got in. And so that's that's where I ended up 
Did you finish? And I grad. Yeah, I graduated, and um, again, I was. I had moved out of my house and had a, a an apartment with three other girls who were all, you know, acting and and going to that school, and they. Um, they would all read the trade papers on weekends, you know, and go to those calls, those casting calls. And I never did. <laughs> I was, I was, um, I, I, nothing occurred to me, you know, I once went to um, an audition for Fiddler on the Roof and I made the mistake of dressing for the part because then actresses went to those casting calls in basic black and pearls with their hair quaffed, you know, and um, little two-inch pumps or one-inch pumps or something. And so I, um, I, I just couldn't get myself to dress like that. You know? So uh, I went to this one audition, it was for Fiddler on the Roof, and I had my hair, I had long hair, so I braided it, and I put a babushka on my head, you know, a scarf. And I got up and I had a peasant dress, you know, the, this was like a new thing, but I, I had a peasant dress. It's no, no shape, just embroidery on the top and puffy sleeves. And I, that's perfect. I look just like a girl from Fiddler on the Roof. And I got up on stage and I heard them laughing. Aww. I heard the guys in the, who were casting laughing I think I got to sing um, a song that I wrote with the guitar. And again, they were like giggling. This was very funny. So um, I didn't go to any auditions after that until I read in the trade papers, there was a play that the um, actors, something or other directors guild of New York were putting on. It was called dark of the moon. And it was a very esoteric play. And oddly enough, I knew this play. I, I had read it. And they needed someone to play Barbara Allen in this play. And she needed to play a guitar and sing. And this seemed incredible. It seemed like, how could, how could I not do this? This is me. This is so me. So um, again, I went there with the way I always dressed. You know? And um, this time I had been in my house in New Jersey, my parents' house. I, I was coming in, it was after I graduated and after all of that, but I saw this ad and I knew that I had to, to audition. And so I took a train into... Um, New York, and it was like an hour and a half train ride into the city. A lot of commuters who worked, you know, in Wall Street went on that train. And it was from Long Branch, New Jersey. And I uh, got there and I realized I don't have a room number. And I'm looking at this Brill building, this beautiful, you know, uh, deco-faced, bronze-fronted with a doorman. And the doorman, full epaulettes and cap and everything. And he was opening the door for people and saying, good morning, Mrs. Murphy. And then under his breath, he would blurt out things like, that's a fucking noise. And 
I kept looking at him and thinking, do I dare ask this man uh, where they're holding this audition for Dark of the Moon? I mean, there were hundreds of offices in this building. And, um, but I, I knew I was going to be late if I, you know, didn't find the building. I looked on the sign inside and didn't see anything familiar. So I went out and I asked him, do you know where they're auditioning for Dark of the Moon? Um, because um, I'm going to be late and I don't have the office number and I'm going on. And he looked at me with these <laughs> intense eyes. And it was, it was almost like, uh, you know, in a, in a movie, I would say it was like a stop motion. You know, everybody, nobody was moving. And he looked right at me and he said, go to room 511. They're always doing weird things there. And I walked out. <laughs> I walked up through there, through, went to the elevator, pressed the fifth floor, went to 511. And I opened the door and there was a, a receptionist secretary with, you know, the walls were like institution color, you know, with, with metal filing cabinets in the front. And it was the office of Hugo and Luigi. So I knew it, it wasn't the right place, but the doorman told me to go there, you know, so I went <laughs> and there was Joyce, the, the, the receptionist. And she said, yes, can I help you? I went, are you auditioning for Dark of the Moon here? And she went, no, no, I'm sorry. You have the wrong doorman. And I'll, now I start you know, I'm emotional. So I, I said, no, I have to be there. I'm going to be late. And I know this is the part I'm supposed to be here. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So what's the name of the company? And she's, she's looking up the building directory. I said, well, here's the actors and directors thing of New York. I said, oh, that must be it. And so she told me where to go. And I went and I auditioned, but in the meantime, now in this state of, oh, I have to get there, you know, because it's really important. And these two guys came in and they saw me with a guitar because it had a girl who played guitar. And they said, Joyce, what does she want? Want an audition? We'll set her up for Thursday. And I, I thought, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> um, so, Anyway, I thanked her and I went to my audition and I read for the part and I knew, I knew this was, this was my, what was going to happen. I was going to get this part and I was going to be an actress and it was going to be a wonderful life. And um, uh, they had me read with several people and then they had me take a lunch break and then they had me come back and take, read with somebody else. And I, I knew I had the part. After the audition, um, I went down to see Joyce and thank her. And I said, I, I think I got the part. I think I got the part. And I was so excited and happy. And she said, oh, yeah. And by the way, Hugo and Luigi will hear you on Thursday or something. You know, come back. And I, I said, uh-huh. And she said, you write your own songs, right? I said, yeah, because I had told her I wrote songs. And she said, yeah, they just want to hear what you do. And um, so I went back um, and I walk in. I'm, again, this outer office is like 
you know, institutional looking and nothing, not, no frou-frou, just metal files and Joyce in the front. And she, she's kind of like Hollywood central casting for a waitress called Blanche, you know, <laughs> like, what do you want, honey? You know, very nice, but, you know, like, um, so I went in and there are these, <laughs> I opened these doors that were double doors. And this was like, like museum pieces were in this, this office and the carpet was plush carpet. And I walked into this other dimension. It was gold chandeliers and Louis the 14th desks facing each other with two chairs and um, they were facing each other. And I was in between the two desks and they said, okay, so play us some songs. And so I started playing some songs I wrote and you wrote that. Yeah. And, um, okay, we'll sing, sing, sing another one. And I sang another one and they're looking at each other, like, you know, like she's pretty weird, <laughs> you know? And, um, I just, I didn't really care because I didn't know what that was, you know, what am I doing this for? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I got the part <laughs> and that's the important thing. And, um, it turns out that they um, they said, well, you know, we're writing a Broadway show because um, we had enough of pop music right now, and we're we're writing this Broadway musical, and we don't have time to do the production company. I didn't even know what they were talking about, really and truly. I was like, yeah, uh -huh. what is a music publisher anyway? <laughs> so. Um, I, I always thought a music publisher with the people who printed out sheet music because <laughs> my mother had piles of it and it would always say published by, you know, so and so. So that's what I thought a music publisher was, you know, somebody who printed out sheet music. Exactly. And here's Hugo and Luigi. I didn't know that they were Hugo and Luigi who had written songs for Jimmy Rogers and Fats Domino and, and all these hit makers, you know, and they wrote um, a Fool's Rush In for Elvis, you know, so they were big deals. And again, I didn't know that. Um, so they said I could, um, uh, they would like me to meet the guy they just hired to run their production company. So uh, I, I had to come back another time. And so, okay. But in the meantime, the, the, uh, production for dark of the moon did stopped being produced they they didn't do it and um but this other thing was happening you know with hugo and luigi and i was going to meet the guy who ran their production company and so i went back and i met peter my husband and that was the rest was it you know he produced my first record he um he was uh um, a real gambler, you know, real, uh, he, he just thought on his feet all the time. He was not a, you know, not a, um, he did everything telepathically, <laughs> I think. And, um, anyway, he booked a session for me. Um, Hugo, and when he heard me the first time, uh, I was in his office and, he had his head down, like, I mean, he's, I started to sing and he put his head down and I could feel, you know, that this, 
he's really liking this. And, you know, I'd never had a reaction like this from anybody before. And uh, I sang another song. He said, he jumped up in the middle of this second song I was singing and he ran into the office of Hugo and Luigi and he was saying something. And they were saying, I don't know, she sounds like she's singing underwater or something. You know? and, um, and I could hear, you know, a commotion. He's making a commotion like, no, you got it. You've got to sign her. She's, you know, whatever. And um, so, sure enough, I signed an agreement with Hugo and Luigi, and um, Peter was the producer. And uh, we recorded. He booked a session that was originally for a group that he was producing. That was a bubbling under top forty hit. I think they were the Marshmallows or. Maybe it was the balloon farm. <laughs> he produced these psychedelic groups. And um, <coughs> sorry, uh, he, um, you know, he was successful in what he was doing. So he had a session booked. I'm not sure whether it was the marshmallows or the balloon farm, but he um, had this session, but I didn't know this, and neither did CBS, which is now Sony, but it was CBS. And he booked a, a, a session, a full-out session with an arranger and um, Johnny Abbott, who had you know arranged very hit big hits. And I, again, I was not, I didn't know that this was, you know, Peter had done this as a, a crazy long shot you know that this and we recorded beautiful people and um with a whole orchestra and this was a time when engineers were in a like an upper they you'd walk upstairs behind a glass partition and i'd look in there and there was peter but the all the engineers were in white lab coats oh my god it was, it was like such a different atmosphere, you know. Nobody was casually dressed except Peter. But um, so they, they are, you know, this was, I felt like, whoa, this is really seriously big deal. And um, I sang Beautiful People. I think we did it in one or two takes. Peter was always fond of saying she did it in one take. But um, it was, you know quick process I just it was so beautiful I mean my song being played by violins and you know a whole orchestra it was mind-boggling you know and I I was very moved and so my performance was really good and we had a record and uh, now it was right at the point when uh, CBS was being, it was almost like a coup, you know, because at one who um, was the Norman who signed me, I think his name is John Hammond. He has a son, John Hammond Jr., I guess. Right, yeah. That, uh, anyway, so um, it was the A&R man. And then at that point, a big deal record company like CBS and RNA they had people running their their A&R department, head of A&R, were, were people who actually studied music. They actually knew what an arpeggio was. <laughs> you know, They knew what um, 
what a melody meant, what lyrical meant, what, uh, you know, of a, a legato and what instruments played those things. And um, which seems, you know, now that I look at that too, the industry became so diluted with um, just shuck and jivers, you know, people who could talk the talk and be cool and, they knew where to go to listen to the new and up and coming and all this stuff, but they weren't music people. They didn't know the first thing about music. Um, but, but the people who signed me to CBS were music people and they thought there was something to this. And Peter proceeded to, um, you know, book this session under the guise of it being for a, a group that had a bubbling under hit and, it wasn't, it was me, <laughs> but, but, um, so, but Clive Davis who took over and he, all of a sudden it was lawyers. Yeah. It was lawyers and something to do with Kinney parking lots and <laughs> strange kind of takeover of the music industry. Um, and Clive Davis didn't get it anyway. He was very upset that Peter dared to do this and he wouldn't even talk to Peter. We had a meeting. And because there was such a buzz with beautiful people, um, uh, Roscoe, the DJ from WNEW New York, playing the record, and it became uh, what they call a turntable hit yeah. because DJs started playing it and it became viral. <laughs> it was no such but it did. It became. Um, you know, every, all the underground stations were started playing beautiful people, even pirate radio um, that was um, like Radio Caroline in England and Radio Veronica, I think. And they were actually would broadcast from boats out at sea because the government controlled what what was played. And, you know, there were certain people who were on lists of song people not to play and I was on that list and um so I I got played by uh, lots of underground radio stations and uh that was my first success it was the only thing that anybody had ever heard but it was like a maverick thing you know it wasn't like uh you couldn't buy it in a store you could only hear it on the radio because um, the, the regime that took over Columbia Records didn't get it. So they didn't service the radio stations. They didn't service record stores. So um, whoever got it, got it. And it, you know, it just worked out that way. So, yeah, so I had my first hit was Beautiful People. But again, it was, um, it was uh, not sold it was just heard well i wanted to ask you because you were um on the i think i could be wrong on the major label uh what was it capital or columbia for a bit then buddha records and then right. in 71 um you and your husband started your own record label right like pretty revolutionary so i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your experience on those record labels and why you ended up in 71 just kind of 
taking control of your, your right like and not dealing with them. Right. Um, well, well, obviously we were going to have we had a riff with uh, CBS, and Clive Davis just believed that I didn't have an escape clause, and Peter had an escape clause in my contract, so I only had. I didn't have to do anything. I was out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that became, uh, I made enemies in high places quickly. <laughs> just just from that detail alone. Mm -hmm. I, I was out of Columbia Records and I went to Buddha Records. And Clive Davis and Neil Bogart were like arch enemies. They did not like each other. And Neil Bogart was much more of a street smart kind of guy who opened a label, you know, and um, that wasn't, he was not in the system yeah. of uh, what was going on. So um, anyway, Neil Bogart totally got it and, you know, put his promotion teams behind me and in fact wanted to do all these, you know, uh, have a hippie wedding because Peter and I were going to get married and he wanted me to do a hippie wedding in Central Park. And I, I, I mean, I was such a, you know, a, a, my whole thing was I want to be authentic and I want to be real. And the thought of, you know, having a hippie wedding in Central Park just rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't agree to have my own perfume company <laughs> you know or, or you know things like, that people do all the time now but to then it just felt like uh there was a saying selling out yeah. they don't they don't use that much anymore because selling out is what you do <laughs> to become a famous person <laughs> and um you know sometimes i don't even know what these people do they're famous for being famous i don't know what they do exactly you know they're just their faces i see and they Names I hear, but I don't know what they do. But anyway, um, yeah, we went to Buddha Records, and uh, Neil had a, an approach. You know, this was very commercial driven. You know, to sell as many records and hippie weddings and this kind of thing were right up his alley, and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, Peter kind of tried to convince me to have a hippie wedding, <laughs> but I. Just, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. Um, and so, you know, like, it just wasn't my thing. And so um, after they they pushed for a record, like, every six months, you know, I was, I had a lot of material built up from all the years I had written and was not recording. So that was not any sort of an issue. I had lots and lots of songs. So I recorded and recorded and recorded. And um, with agreement that was signed um, had something to do with them owning my copyright. Anyway, we, I won. I won the rights back. It was like a, a precedent-setting case that um, a big New York lawyer made a career out of this because it never happened that I won my rights back because um, it was totally, it was a shaft, you know, it was really not in there clearly. It was um, 
convoluted and not fair. So I won my um, copyrights back. And uh, after the three years of, you know, we, we disagreed on a lot of stuff. So um, I we thought I would my own record label where I could do what I want and I could record what I want and I can be seen as I want to be seen because I, I had the feeling Buddha Records <clears throat> was um, considered a bubblegum label, okay. uh, which which was very, uh, you know, superficial, yummy, yummy, goody, goody. I got love in my tummy and all those kind of those silly songs. And there I was, you know, yeah. and um, I became like um, kind of a target to be bashed by uh, Rolling Stone. And, and again, this was a magazine I thought of as my people, you know, these are my people, you know, because it certainly wasn't mainstream me. I wasn't, I didn't think. And um, I thought they they kind of get that, but I didn't know about the whole politics of, uh, what's his name, John Land, what's, no, no, it wasn't, um, Jan Werner and all of those connections of, you know, who does what and to who and, you know, all that stuff. And the, again, the Kinney parking lot people, they all had something to do with Clive Davis and um, certain performers were in the in crowd and certain ones were not. And I was definitely not. So I was the girl to bash. I mean, they would, they would have me um, in, in sharing a page with uh, who's a Bobby, Bobby Rydell or something, you know, like some real schmaltzy person. And they always bashed me, you know, that they, they never even said I wrote the songs. I was, um, uh, at that point, there were, there weren't any girls who wrote songs. And I mean, they didn't, there weren't any who pr were promoted as writing the song. They weren't, there wasn't a term singer songwriter yet. It was, um, I was called the female Bob Dylan because, because he wrote songs and sang them. And um, so, you know, the, uh, uh, this whole, um, all this stuff was going on underneath, you know, and then we opened Neighborhood Records. I was the first. A woman, for sure, whoever opened a label here, um, and the uh, there was um, we were the the only other independent label that had ever been opened was again the Beatles had Apple Records. That was the first time artists took control. Well, you know, but they they had a lot of legal um, people involved. I I didn't. Um, it was just me and Peter. <laughs> I, I wallpapered the thirty seventh floor of Trump Tower, <laughs> oh which was then the Gulf and Western Building. <laughs> I, I had, you know, I did Schumacher wallpaper. These beautiful paisley prints that I had in our office and we had the whole floor of the Gulf and Western building. And I think RCA was distributing our records, but there was so much that we didn't know 
you know, first of all, I didn't know I was I had made irreparable damage to to it with certain people in the industry that I was my name was, you know, mud in the industry. They they were not happy that I opened my own label, number one. And uh, Neil Bogart was the darling of, um, you know, record rock jobbers and these guys who, you know, sell records. And, uh, and of course, Clive Davis, <laughs> I did The Unforgivable and we had a loophole. That was a very bad thing for a lawyer to find that their artist had a loophole. And I was out of there. So here we were, you know, fighting the powers that be without even knowing. Yeah. Which is a very dangerous position to be in. But um, we had, uh, I signed the different groups. There was a, a group that I, I thought was very good, J Janie and Dennis. Um, they were out of New England, actually. And um, Janie Schramm still, still writes and sings. And I talked to her pretty recently um, in Nashville. And uh, there was the $5 shoes. They were uh, the, one of the first glam rock guys. They had, you know, five-inch heels with boots that went up to their legs. And, and <laughs> um and, and I was very involved. I, I named them Five Dollar Shoes. Oh, you uh, cause of, Yeah, there was a song called, um, uh, I don't know what it was called. It was good. Two Dollar Shoes Hurt My Feet, Oh Lord. Two Dollar <laughs> Shoes Hurt My Feet. Five Dollar Shoes Fit Some Need, Oh Lord. And I ain't going to be treated this way. <laughs> anyway, I always loved that song. And I thought, Five Dollar Shoes, that's a cool name, you know. So, um, yeah, I named them. And uh, there was a lot of fuss about them and stuff. But they were having internal problems. And, you know, Mike Milius, I, the head lead singer, um, became, I think, it, uh, he works. He began, he became a, a music publishing guy. He worked, you know, he, he worked in an office after that. And uh, Greg Diamond, um, I don't know, they had problems. And we, we spent a lot of money. <laughs> we had a lot of money but promoting them, you know, getting their clothes and their stylists and everything. And um it, it was it was really fun, but again, we were like totally. I certainly didn't know what we were doing, you know. And Peter, he was all about music and the feel and producing and getting the records. And he knew about promotion. Then, you know, it was, you know, you could, um, you had to hire different promotion men, and if you hired this guy, it was sure that your record would be in a heavy rotation and if you didn't hire that guy you know there was all those things but um I'm, I, I had no idea that there was this undercurrent of something else going on that um again I didn't know um and all of a sudden RCA was getting rid of um uh we were in uh, what is it black or red i forgot the good thing oh. is um black red <laughs> the, oh i thought in the red was I, bad 
the red is bad, right? We were in red. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, and it, I, don't, I don't know how this happened. We had brand new key was yeah. a neighborhood. And, and there were so many other things that were going on that were successful. But uh, again, there were these undercurrents of other things that were going on that brought us down. And we didn't have neighborhood records anymore. And of all the things, Peter was one of these people who, I mean, he just, he could be, uh, I, I mean, I knew that Clive Davis was not a good person for me. You know, I, he actually made me cry in his office. So I, you know, that that's not a good sign. It's really not a good sign. Um, he said, do you have the audacity to cry in the office of the president of CBS Records? And at that, I just like bolted out of the room <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, so, but Peter thought it was a good idea. Clive was opening another label. He was going to be the head of Arista. And Arista was had all this intention of having another big label. We signed with Arista, of all things, after after Neighborhood. So we were with Arista, and then again, um, that wasn't working out at all. <laughs> Clive Davis wanted me to sing this song that uh, I just, I heard it, and I thought, oh, God, I don't think I can do this, but you know, Peter, don't be difficult, you know, like try, see what you can. So they had this producer who ended up being Cindy Lauper's producer, um, uh, came to my house when we lived in New Jersey still. And we worked, you know, on the piano and, and he was having me sing on the beat. Now I, I don't do that. You know, I, I'm a, a very syncopated, I like to play around with the beat. Mm. I have a really strong sense of rhythm and I have my own way of phrasing yeah. that is not on the beat. And this producer was was trying to teach me how to sing this song on the beat. And I said, I can't do that. So, um I didn't work with him. Peter became the producer again. And this was all under the guidance of Clive Davis. And I'm in this studio and Bon Jovi was the runner <laughs> in the studio. He, he's the one who brought us coffee, you know? And anyway, I mean, it was, you know, it was really big studio. I can't even remember what it was, but, um, yeah, I, I, we recorded the record so that I could stand it, you know, it was kind of a schmaltzy ballad and Clive Davis said, this is the song that's going to, you know, really be the one. And uh, I tried to make it my own, which was the big mistake, you know, um, and uh, I we brought the record in and he um, definitely didn't like it, <laughs> you know, definitely did not like it. And again, somewhere in the night and right after 
I um, and I, I actually wrote a part for this song that um, he had Barry Manilow do this song after me, <laughs> and and Barry Manilow did it right on the beat, you know, <laughs> and um, but he did take that part that I wrote, <laughs> which was a repetitive chorus part and um and he had a hit you know as promised by clive davis if i had done it and then and he actually said that to peter but barry did it my way yeah so i know <laughs> so after that after that we went to time warner time warner atlantic we had a relationship with amit erdogan Amit was in the studio, came to the studio. We were in some studio in California and Amit Erdogan drove in with his white Rolls Royce limo and came in and heard me and he was like all over it. He said, not since he was Billy Holiday's roadie. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So um, he said, not since Billie Holiday have I heard anything like this. Wow. So um, he wanted to sign me right away. And so Peter rode around the block in his white Rolls Royce and they signed a deal. <laughs> and uh, I was on Atlantic, you know, and everything was great. I mean, I had carte blanche in a L.A. studio and... This was right at the beginning of cocaine running the music business. And I wasn't a person that did that. I, for, I, you know, I didn't never thought cocaine was a musical drug. It's kind of a hard hitting. It, it's not, it's not conducive to making melodious beautifulness, you know, is <laughs> maybe something else, but not that. So it, it was definitely did not appeal to me, but we had the, <clears throat> the Coke mirrors were actually in the board. They were actually on the board. So these guys are chopping all the time. I'm watching them. You know, they're more absorbed in the whole thing. Is it pink? Is it white? It's got this other kind. And, and they're, they're all about the cocaine. And Amit is in, in and out of the studio and uh, there are some people who can do drugs and they don't seem to affect them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that there are some, I, I think they're the evilest people. <laughs> Just somehow they don't get affected. You know, they do them, but the, the, somehow they skirt the whole devastating aspect of it. Yeah. And Amit was one of those people. You know, he could partake in everything, but he was... But I don't, I mean, I liked Ahmed. He did. He was, personally, I got along with him. We made jokes. He was funny. I always had a soft spot for people who made me laugh. So, um, yeah, he was, he was in there and he got, um, Peter was the producer, but he had gotten David Page, who was Marty Page's son, and was becoming the darling of the production world in LA. Okay, so um, so I, uh, you know, we we um, were working with David Page, and it was it was going pretty good. We were kind of having. He was uh, David Page was 
introducing also awkward things for me musically to do. So we were recording, we were having musical differences. And um, I actually named uh, his group Toto. Again, I'm a good namer. I should have done that for a living. I named his group because um, I had a song called uh, We're Not in Kansas. Okay. Toto, stop your barking because we're not in Kansas no more. Anyway, um, yeah, he thought that was a good name, and he—that was the name of the group. And hey, Bo, yeah, could you call Layla and tell her I'm talking? Oh, she's trying to call me. I don't know what it is, but um, <coughs> so Amit was there throughout the whole session. We got um, um, what was his name? Amazing. Uh, saxophone player to play on on a couple of um, tracks and and they there were some things that were musically you know gelling and there were some things that weren't anyway the the album was um we finally went to a different studio just more of an earthy kind of vibe studio i had chick korea play on some songs and um it, it was really it, I took it back, you know, I kind of like, oh, I feel like I'm in control again, you know, where it was kind of being taken away from me. And, um, and it came out as, a, as an album called Photograph. And uh, what was John Rockwell of the New York Times said, if there was one album you should get was a masterpiece album. And soon as it came out it was pulled off the shelves yeah i mean atlantic records shelved it it was it, it was the first time i really thought uh there's things going on that people don't know and i certainly didn't know but there's something else going on in music and controlling music and controlling i mean even tuning you know, I, I found out that 440 wasn't always the standard tuning. It became the standard tuning before uh, the First World War or something when they pressured the British Institute to change to 440. I mean, um, the Verdi was 432. And, you know, I didn't know anything about this stuff, you know, how, but music is so powerful and can it can enliven the spirit of people to the point where it's dangerous for governments who want all control. Mm -hmm. And I put myself in the position I, I, first really unwittingly. And now I don't give a shit, <laughs> you know, um, it, it's really, I'm, I'm beyond that. Um, the, uh, I'm I'm in 4:32 for sure and certain. Sometimes 4:44. John Lennon was singing in 4:44, I, and you know, I, I, look what happened to him. You know what I mean? Uh, it's big. It's very big. I mean, why would governments pressure the British Institute to change to 4:40? Why would they care? Yeah. You know, it's just music, right? I mean, it's just music. No, and, and that's why today, too, there's like an actual blueprint, a formula for 
pop songs. And that's why oh my God. song on the radio sounds like I know. Thing. Well, the, at one point, there were just two guys who wrote all the yes. hits. Right? Yeah. <laughs> one guy from Sweden and oh. another guy from L.A. And they wrote all the hits. That was it. <laughs> This concludes uh, episode four, part one, uh, Women of Rock Oral History Project interview with Melanie. Um, Please listen to part two of this amazing and insightful interview. Just to let you guys, everyone know, um, Melanie is performing on May 29th. It's a Zoom performance. You can purchase tickets on her Facebook page, uh, Melanie Safka. Um, So thank you for listening and see you next time.